You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is David Mayan. Now, we had David Mayan as a guest just two episodes ago, back in episode 92, and this is actually more from that same conversation. This episode is about Mahamudra, which is a type of Tibetan Buddhism founded by Chogyam Trungpa in the mid-20th century. Fascinating conversation. We talk about meditation, we talk about enlightenment, male sexuality, female sexuality, and sexuality generally as practiced within the context of Tibetan Buddhism, which is really up our alley. Just fascinating stuff. I love this topic. And David Mayan speaks with authority and experience on this topic, so let's get into it. We met the other night. Mm-hmm. We had a beautiful dinner. I really enjoyed that in our conversation. Um, we spoke about something that you that's become a, a deep love of yours, and, and I know there's a few things that we talked about that oh, were yeah. deep loves of yours. Yeah. Um, I would actually like to start off by talking about uh, the Buddhist aspect of your life. Okay. Because I, sure. I think you were talking about Mahamudra, and um, I don't know a lot about that. I know very little. Um, both Satch and I are are um, avid um, vipassanators. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we follow um, the teachings of S.N. Goenka through the, the tradition of vipassana. Sure, you know. sure. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about your experience, how you got into it, you know, what it is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, was living in Long Beach, and I think it was probably about 1990, maybe 89, and I would take these sojourns up to Northern California, because I like to kind of get out of the city. And I would stop at this books on tape store that was, I think, in the marketplace. And and I would go through, there were different sections, and I'd go through the metaphysical section and stuff. And I saw this six cassette case, and it had a picture of Choygim Trumpka on the front. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting case. So I turned it over and I read it, and it was... Uh, cutting through materi- uh, spiritual materialism, mm-hmm. uh, which is really kind of his seminal work. And, yeah. and uh, I remember getting out of town, and I think it was like right over the grapevine, and I popped in the first cassette. And I heard this voice that was a hybrid of a Tibetan accent and an Oxford Diction accent. Hmm. And it had this rasp in it. And my entire central nervous system kind of caught on fire. And so I got this charge all over my body and it felt really good. It felt like, you know, when somebody scratches an itch and it's like really good, Mm. but it was every pore, every cell in my body was like that. And it was so profound, I had to pull over. And so that was my first introduction to to my teacher and he had died about three years before. So when I got back, I started to do a little research and, and whatnot. And I found out that a group of his senior students were teaching at a place called Dharmadatu in the Fairfax district in Mm -hmm. uh, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I went up there, introduced myself, and they had two tracks. They had a traditional Tibetan Buddhist track, which uh, didn't say Mahamudra, but it was what what they taught. And then they had another track, which was called Shambhala, and that was uh, Trungpa's way to try to hybridize Tibetan Buddhism in such a way that allowed uh, uh, Westerners to be able to comprehend it from their perspective. Mm. 
And I immediately gravitated towards the Tibetan Buddhist track. And uh, my primary teacher was a woman named Sarah Sadowski. She's known by Tarpa Chotra now. And she was one of his senior students for probably about 22 years before he died. And she was a real ball buster. You know, mm. I mean, I come in there, I'm the strapping 29-year-old kid, and, you know, I'm full of my metaphysical self. And I'm like, well, tell me what all this meditation stuff is about. And she said, okay. She said, see that cushion there? I said, yeah. And she said, go ahead and sit down on that. And she says, uh, when people have a crisis, what other people tell them is, don't just sit there, do something. And she said, it's kind of the dyslexic version of that. Don't do anything, just sit there. And she walked out of the room. And I was like, WTF, right, mm -hmm. right? But that was the first substantial teaching I got, which is you need to clear away all your preconceived notions of Buddhism, uh, all the things that you think you know about spirituality or you know, a magical practice or anything like that. And... What she taught me was a technique called Mahamudra Shamatha. And Shamatha, as you probably know, has two sides to it. It's got Shamatha and what you talked about, Vipassana. Now, the difference between a traditional Tibetan Buddhist meditation or Tibetan meditation uh, and uh, Mahamudra is most of the time people meditate with their eyes closed. And our teacher, Trungpa, really kind of frowned upon that because he had this idea, and I believe he was right, that when people meditate on their eyes closed, it becomes a very self-centered endeavor, right? And they're developing any clairvoyance or any uh, uh, insight uh, from an exclusive internal or intrinsic point of view. And he said, no, we want to have people learn how to live in the world. Because we have this dualistic dichotomy that says, if you want to be spiritual or if you want to be Buddhist, um, you have to hide from the world. You know, you have to kind of hermetize yourself. And he said, that's completely wrong. You know, you have to take all your experiences, good, bad, and indifferent, and you have to incorporate them in the path. Hmm. He said, uh, adversity is the vanguard of bravery, which I really liked a lot. It's a nice, yeah. it's a nice nicely sure. put. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so <clears throat> he taught eyes open meditation. And, uh, and again, most traditional medita meditators will focus on an object or a focal point, like a candle or whatnot. Mm. He said, no, we don't want you to do that either. What we want to have you do is learn how to meditate in the space uh, in the room. And so he had a particular posture that he taught us. And uh, when you meditate on the space in the room, after a year, things start to happen. So I'm meditating 45 minutes to an hour and a half twice a day, hmm. right? So it's really, really militant. And I'm getting bored as hell. And Sarah's like, this is not entertainment. You're not here to be entertained. Just sit there, right? And so when you meditate on the space in a room, um, you start to, over a period of time, get a sense that there is an energy in that space and that that energy is actually alive and that it's intelligent. You don't know what it is yet, but you sense that it's there. And you start having experiences that synchronize, that have the synchronicity to give you validation that what it, you're experiencing is not um, delusional. 
you know. Are you referring to like phenomenological manifestations that are reflected in the things that you experience? Yeah, both both intrinsically during the meditation and mm-hmm. after the meditation. And so, um, it, you know, some of these things are really hard to articulate because they're purely experiential. Mm-hmm. But what I came to an understanding was is that that space in the room was compassion and that compassion isn't just a cute trigger word it's actually the currency in the universe and it is highly intelligent and it connects everything so the first level of understanding and again it's experiential not an intellectual understanding Mm -hmm. is that there was no separation between myself and that compassion we were both made from the same component. So that was the first uh, onion layer peel that pulled away from my sense of duality, right? Because we always have this addiction to self and other, left, right, black, white, good, evil, right? So this created an inclusivity in that. And then that that compassion started to communicate. So it's like non-dual. Yeah. Non-dualism. Yeah, but an experiential sense of non-duality as opposed to an intellectual sense. Because as soon as you intellectualize non-duality, you're stuck back in it. It's very clever. You know, it's very, very clever. So I started to have post-meditation experiences. And what Sarah taught me was, you're going to get what's called pointing out instruction. And she says, it's a natural phenomena where you're going to have a period where you just kind of pop. And you're awake, you're conscious, but there's almost no thought going on. And you feel this compassion fully and completely. And it, it opens your heart to the point to where you will weep uncontrollably. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. And Joni Mitchell, the, um, uh, the uh, vocalist, uh, she uh, was a student of Trumpa for a while. And he did that for her. And it lasted a couple of weeks for her. And hmm. she does a video... I think it's on YouTube where she articulates it, and that's exactly what happened for me too. To look at that, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm a big Joni Mitchell fan. So. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, question for you, because um, you, you said meditating on the space in the room. I can imagine what I think that means, mm-hmm. but would you articulate what that actually means for you? It's diabolically boring. It's so boring that you know people. They, they're all excited in the beginning. And, you know, after a week or two, they're like, you know, this is, I need more entertainment. So the technique is, is that you sit in a particular posture and you shift your focus point to where it's not focused on a particular object. So it's kind of like a peripheral type of vision. Okay. And that allows you to be able to kind of have a almost like a panoramic or 360 view uh, perceptually of the space in the room. And I would sit in the middle of the room because I wanted to have that 360 understanding of the space. Not because I wanted to be in the center, but it gave me a better sense of that. And does it, does it stay, does your awareness or is the intent of that, that practice, Mm -hmm. the, well, the practice of the practice, right. Is that to keep it in the room uh, while you're doing at that stage, or is it just everything even beyond the room, or is that later? That's later. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's later. And the technique is very simple, which is you um, uh, rest your attention on your breath, just like Vipassana, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you rest that attention on the very 
apex of where the out-breath ends and the in-breath begins. And you do that, and after two or three or four breaths, your unbridled mind starts going off in some sort of neurotic tangent, right? As it want to do. It's got to create some sort of dualistic drama, and it can be anything, you know? And that can go on for a minute, two minutes, sometimes five minutes, right? Because we love drama. But there's an instant where you recognize that you've gone off the technique, and then you bring yourself back on the technique. Now, we're a shame-based culture, so everybody has been trained almost from birth that when you have that realization or that spark of awareness that you've gone off the technique, you go, damn it, I suck at this. I'm going to go back to doing it, right? Mm. And Trungpa said no. He said you have to train yourself that when you have that spark of awareness, you have to have open heart and tenderness for yourself. And you gently bring yourself back. Because, again, duality says if you're on the technique, you're doing good, right? You're a good meditator. And if you're off the technique, you're a bad meditator. He said no. He said it, the entirety of that back and forth is the meditation of Mahamudra. Mm. And it takes a long time, but eventually you start getting this mental stability that is indescribable. You can focus and concentrate on stuff for a long time. Mm. You know, now thanks to social media, uh, Americans have been trained to not pay attention to anything in particular for more than nine seconds. Mm -hmm. And you can see it and hear it, like in coffee shops, listening to people talk to each other. They'll start a conversation, and after about eight or nine seconds, they forget what they're talking about. Yep. And then they'll shift in their chair, right? And they'll either try to fake it or they'll go on to an, a, another topic or conversation to try to cover up the fact that they did it. This happens over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I keep mm -hmm. hearing about studies that under some context, it's even less. It's like three and a half seconds. It's yeah. what, what they were talking about, a, it's on par with a goldfish. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. flattering? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like density university. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. Yeah. You know, I'm really, really happy you shared that that idea about, you know, not not chastising yourself that we have a, mm -hmm. a shame culture. Mm -hmm. One of the best things I ever learned, it was actually a coworker once. We used to have fantastic conversations. Um, I tend to do that, don't I, Carlos? Have you fantastic do. conversations. Just, you really with, do with with people. Um, and uh, this this gentleman was uh, a truly fantastic person. And one of the things he said to me was, we were just having a conversation about changing things in our lives. And, and um, he taught me, he said, when you catch yourself thinking the wrong things, doing it the way you don't want to do it, right. he says, that's the moment when you congratulate yourself and thank yourself for catching it. Right. Yeah. And that made such a big difference. I, 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 would, I would go, oh, well, there I go again, you know, not doing what I said. And I go, oh, good job. Pat myself on the back. Right. You caught yourself this time. Fabulous. And you right. celebrate that moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a difference that made, you know? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And it's life-changing in a lot of ways. And it's an uphill battle. It's very Sisyphusian. You roll the boulder uphill mm -hmm. because the rest of our culture says no. Nice you reference. Know? You know, your job is to allow us to shame you into compliance, and your job is to pick up where we leave off. Mm -hmm. And this is the unspoken tragedy of American culture. It really, really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, this, this idea of, um, you know, sometimes it can be helpful. Obviously, duality has a purpose too, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but looking at those situations as either self love or self hate, mm -hmm. um, because at first, when, when you're not aware that you're doing it, 
it's easy to say, oh, I don't hate myself. It's very easy. The ego doesn't want to believe that it's hating itself. Right. Um, but when you do dichotomize it like that, you can, you can begin to see, oh, wow, when I forgot my keys earlier and I had to go back in the house for them, that was a moment where I, I did a little bit of self-hatred. Right. And I could have just said, hey, you know what? I'm glad I remembered now. You know, I could have said that, but I didn't. I yeah. said, oh, shit, you know, I'm an idiot or yeah. whatever it is that I said. That was a self-loathing moment. And if you, if you understand it that way, it becomes clear and you can kind of flesh that out and go, where am I hating on myself and where am I actually loving on myself? And can I take those hateful moments and turn them into moments of compassion for right, myself? Right. Now, here's, here's a qualitative difference. Now, that's really good, but that's more like almost a Pavlovian approach, mm -hmm. which is not to say it's bad, but Mahamudra uh, demands more. So when you are doing this and you do it over and over again for hours over a time of years, um, you're able to get down into the roots of why instead of just going, okay, I'm going to do that mm -hmm. and not do that. I'm going to train myself, you know, uh, to, to not do that, which is great. But again, it's topical. We need to get down to the roots of why, you know, and it, then the why is different for everybody. You know, another technique that Sarah taught me was um, to ask myself a question, uh, where do my thoughts come from and where do they return to? And I went nuts with that one, right? Because mm -hmm. it's kind of one of those Zen koans, yeah. you know? And yeah. she refused to give me the answer, you know? And I'd yell at her, you know? You're humiliating me, you know? And she said, just sit there, right? Just sit there. And over a period of time, uh, the, answer, the answer never came, but the result that she was seeking came which is that our thinking does not like to be observed. Its power uh, of using anxiety to keep us enslaved, and we'll get into more of that a little bit later, um, it uses um, this to keep us in the dark, you know, for years and years and years, and people live and die that way, mm. you know, and it's just unnecessary to, uh, uh, you know, to have to live that kind of existence. But when thoughts are observed, and they're observed consistently, they get really quiet because they don't want to give up the ghost, you know? And that quietude allows for that experience of um, merging with compassion to happen because the, the uh, barrier to it is anxiety-based thinking. And all thinking is anxiety-based thinking. Hmm. It is, it really is. Hmm. Even uh, when we're experiencing joy, um, there's this self-centered fear in the background that says, when is this going to end? How is it going to end? But I know it's going to end, right? So there's always that agonizing reappraisal. It's very subtle. People don't know what's happening. But if people do this technique long enough, you get to the roots of that kind of stuff. Mm. 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 That's really awesome. Wow. Your, your mentioning of the, of the tears it reminds me of the experience I had when I did my Vipassana retreat mm -hmm. in, in uh, Australia um, because I hit a point where, um, I don't know what day it was, um, it's this 10-day thing that we do, and um, it was like suddenly without focusing on compassion at all, Mm -hmm. You and I talked about this, Fetch. Mm -hmm. There was no focus on compassion specifically. Mm -hmm. It was literally just on cleaning and clearing the lens of being able to see the self. And it was just a natural thing that, that, that the compassion that was already there 
floated up to the surface, and I felt this sense of um, acceptance and understanding that the wounds of the world and all the poison and the toxic behaviors and all that kind of stuff that that exists were the result of ignorance, mm-hmm. uh, serious misery. Mm-hmm. And because I'd had a moment of um, clarity in a, in a place where I was a little less miserable mm-hmm. in my own existence mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the work that we were doing, which was grueling and difficult. Um, but in that moment when I was like a, like a path was clear and the natural thing that emerged without any effort was an overwhelming sense of compassion. Mm-hmm. And it was, it became this understanding that I had that if, if, if I were to cleanse my um, perception to that degree, that compassion would just simply flow. It would just float because it's there inside anyway. Right. And that's the, that's the qualitative difference is that people think compassion is something that you have to incorporate to yeah. bring in, but it's already there. Mm-hmm. It's within you and without you. Mm-hmm. You know, and when it when when we connect with it, it is it's emotionally um, very intense. You know, people's heart swings, all, the doors fly open, mm-hmm. and it's like a hurricane coming out. You know, and uh, Trumpa was really articulate about stuff like this, and he called it uh, open heart. And he said, when most of us uh, experience open heart, we run for the hills. Right, because we got to shut that door as quickly as possible. Because that dualistic fear of this, I'm really vulnerable, you know. And he said, "What you need to do when you experience an open heart is you need to move in and set up furniture." Mm. Right, mm. and that just floored me. It really did. But you can learn how to do this. You know, you can learn how to live your life, your existence with a sense of open heart, with a sense of compassion that is permeating everything, you know? And it's an amazing way to live, you know, because you now you can see the nuances of how one being will uh, tenderly take care of another being, you know? It could be, you know, a blade of grass dancing with the wind, mm. you know? It can be like the light dancing through the tree that you talked about over dinner. Yeah, you know? right. And it's those that, that minutia, that really fine minutia, that when we're experiencing it, we're right in the moment. There's no fear of the past, no regret of the past, no fear of the future. It's right now. But instead of like trying to produce presence or produce the immediate moment, it's spontaneous. A couple of thoughts. Um, earlier you were talking about being bored when you first started meditating. Mm-hmm. And that's a common experience that, that people have is boredom. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's meditated for any amount of time knows what boredom is, right? Because right. It, it tends to come up, right? right. And uh, Carlos, you and I have talked about this. Um, I remember the first time I had done a, a long meditation you know, training, um, I was meditating in my room, you know, away from the hall, and just really feeling that that mind-numbing boredom, right? Mm-hmm. Just hour after hour after hour of, and then and then something shifted, and I thought, huh, I'm here observing all these sensations that are happening in my in my being. Right. So if I'm bored, how do I know that I'm bored? Huh? Well, because I feel that I'm bored. All right. So if I feel that I'm bored. Where do I feel it? What does it feel like? Right. What does boredom actually feel like? Right. And then began to observe the boredom itself. 
as a sensation and started to notice that, oh, what I thought was boredom was just, you know, um, pressure here, um, a sensation there. Mm -hmm. And then what's fascinating is after a while, boredom became fascinating. <laughs> right. Isn't it fascinating how boredom becomes fascinating. Right. You know what I mean? And so yeah. you kind of notice that. And, and I think one of the lessons that I got from that is um, things are not what they seem, you know, even when you think they are. And they always pass. And they always pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, what you don't like now, you might really love later mm -hmm. uh, and vice versa. Who knows, you know, um, but uh, I just wanted to share that, you know, because, because you were talking about boredom. Um, it's really good. It's really good. I yeah. complained to Sarah, man, I'm really bored. She said, that's wonderful. Mm. I said, what's wrong with you? She said, she said, most people, the only two times that they're in the present moment is when they're bored or when they're having an orgasm. Oh, yeah. So you need to penetrate bored. Or you stub your toe really uh, hard. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in exactly. pain. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pain can make you very present too. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, boredom, it, it, it's a gift. It really is because it really yes. forces you into the moment. And what mm -hmm. you did is instead of demanding an entertainment change, which is what I did. I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. I need entertainment, right? <laughs> you know, boredom <laughs> is light show. <laughs> boredom is the antithesis of yeah. my addiction to entertainment, right? Uh, what you did was it was very Buddhistic of you, was to penetrate that boredom and get to the source of it. Mm, yeah, really, sure, it's, sure. it's really astute uh, uh, the way you did that. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, we, was, we did uh, for the listener. Um, we did an entire episode on boredom. It's that's right. We it's did. called the interesting thing about boredom, mm -hmm. and we, we we really dove into the whole, yeah, <laughs> the layers of boredom. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. I told that story. Yeah. Do you know what the history of Mahamudra is? No, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting on how it kind of evolved. So most spiritual movements or mystery schools or whatnot, they have an arc where they have their golden time and they have their uh, renaissance and uh, there's a tremendous amount of value for the people that are involved. But over a period of time, they tend to degenerate, right? And then you get more cult-like behavior, you get more... Uh, like uh, Aztec type of degeneration, mm. you know, where it went from being Toltec shamans and really, really being good at that to slaughtering your people, you know, just for blood sacrifice. So that's a good example. But um, this happened to Buddhism too. It didn't go into the blood sacrifice thing that we know of. But, um, but right around the 11th, century, the 12th century, things had become so rigid that um, it was very, very dogmatic and very fundamentalistic. And they created this rigid um, educational curriculum where uh, you had to be a monk or a nun. You had to renounce your entire life. So you had to hermeticize yourself, mm -hmm. which is, again was the opposite of what Trumpet said uh, that, that you should do. And... Um, you know, you had to go through 20 years of preparation before you actually got into the Tantras, right? 
And so there was a group of about 12 Mahasiddhas, and these were guys were like badasses, right? And they said, this has got to end. So they broke off and created Mahamudra, and as opposed to having it strictly monastic, they said, we're going to create a system of practice that is for lay people, that they can do while they're working, while they're playing with their children, while they're raising their families, while they're experiencing life. And we're going to incorporate all the things that happen in a person's life into the path. And they called it Mahamudra. And then it branched off into another school of Tibetan Buddhism, and they changed the name to Dzogchen. Uh. Right? So they're very much sister practices, but they, there's different flavors to them, you know, and different heritage, heritages. But it's really an act of renegade Buddhism in a lot of ways because it just stripped away all the dogma, you know, and all the pre preconceived notions. And Brahmanism had a really important part of that, which is also very strict you know, back historically back then. Mm -hmm. And so Trungpa liked that. And he was raised doing Mahamudra. His teachers did Mahamudra. And their whole uh, spiritual agenda, their life purposes, was to be able to help propagate that in the West. What would you say the primary differences or nuanced differences are between uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra? And where do they connect? Well, I think Mahamudra is more meditative-based, so it's more experiential. I think it's more heart-based as far as compassion. Mm -hmm. Dzogchen uh, was brought into the uh, Glugpa uh, sect of Tibetan Buddhism, which is the uh, Dalai Lama's sect. And that's very erudite. It's very scholarly. It's very intellectual. Mm. You know, their monks uh, will um, uh, memorize hundreds, uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of texts that they have to be able to recite, you know, on the spot. So it's very erudite. Mm. And so Dzogchen is more of an intellectual approach. And Mahamudra is more of a, I think, a heart-based compassion approach. Not that they don't cross over. Yeah. And both are important. One's not better or one's not worse. Mm -hmm. It's just some people are more intellectual and they tend to gravitate to that practice and some people are more heart-based. Thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So um, maybe just to clarify, are there, are there monks then in this, this tradition? Because it seems, you know, in, in, in Buddhism there's householders and monks you know those are sort of the mm -hmm. the two kinds of people in buddhism right mm -hmm. you only get two kinds in buddhism householders and monks right so um in any how thoughts dualistic. about how that right right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah how, how does that how does that work in in this tradition well um it kind of goes back to what we just talked about as far as Mahamudra being a flavor that some people's palate enjoys, and Dzogchen is that. Some people wanted to do the lay path of Mahamudra. Some wanted to be monastic in it. But Tibetan Buddhism's sense of monastic is categorically different than even Theravada, mm -hmm. right? Or the Jesuits, or you know, Gregorian monks, or what have you. In that, um, they like sex. They enjoy it. And a lot of times they're married. They have consorts. Their consorts are nuns. And they, they incorporate um, that into their practice. They use that sexual energy in, into their practice. And they don't really advertise it. They don't talk about it because they know it kind of creates um, stuff. 
you know, but they're doing it in a whole different level uh, than what the average person does. You know, the average human being, they race to orgasm as quickly as possible. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. And as many as possible. And what they do is different. What they're doing is they're actually conserving energy. And the Gnostics did this too, where they will make love to their partner and it will be very enjoyable, but they don't orgasm or they don't orgasm for a long time. And they take that energy that builds up and uh, retransmute it and incorporate that into greater levels of realization. And that's probably the hardest practice on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you talk to people, like especially guys, like, do you ever think about what it would be like to have sex with your wife and not orgasm for six months? And they <laughs> look at you like you're from Mars. What are you talking about, right? But there are benefits to doing that, you know, there are benefits and I've done that, you know, I went an entire year without an orgasm with a partner, you know, well, actually the partner dropped out after a while because women have a hard time with it too. And the teacher that was guiding me, he said, it's going to be like starving a tiger. You know, your male lust keeps you completely ignorant and you are completely led around by your nose by women. You know, and they are able to manipulate you very, very easily by using your lust against you. So you have to get on the other side of that. And the best way to do that is to make love, but not orgasm. And he says, what happens when you start to starve a tiger? The tiger gets mad. So you're going to go through, you're going to go through two or three months, the first two or three months in murderous homicidal rage. And I'm like, dude, that is not me, right? I had to lock myself in the apartment for a while because it was like really bad, you know? And he says, well, what happens if you don't starve the tiger? If you don't feed the tiger, the tiger starts to emaciate and he starts getting weak. And then you start getting the upper hand. And so it allowed me to be able to see how I was controlled by lust, how I was controlled by this uh, perpetual preoccupation for the haunt, you know, and not to say that's necessarily bad. I mean, male humans have been doing that, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, but it freed me from what I thought was an independent pursuit, but was the worst kind of slavery I could ever imagine hmm. for any individual. Hmm. So, after about a year, I kind of went back, but it was very different. It was very, very different. I started attracting different types of women. I started to involve myself in women that were a lot healthier, right? Because I wasn't an easy mark for women that were looking for easy marks, you know? And it's a very controversial idea. Yeah, we, we tend to um, use very different filters once we've reached a certain level of understanding. Right. And of course, um, you know, things that might be attractive to a certain level of person that's functioning from a certain level of thinking and being, that's going to change, um, if you change in a fundamental way Mm -hmm. and sexuality and sexual energy is a fundamental energy in our life. It's Mm -hmm. very much survival. And, and continuance of our race and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's wrapped up in so many other things, you know, mm-hmm. passions and other stuff. So mm-hmm. I can um, absolutely get behind that idea. 
um, because no pun intended. Um, but, um, you know, if you have a pattern of attracting certain types of people for a long period of time, and then suddenly you change this fundamental aspect of yourself, right. how could you not begin to notice a difference, you know, and sure. that, how could they not at some level notice a difference as well? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, there were realizations that most people would go, what? You know, I mean, I got very comfortable with the idea of admitting that women are 50 times more intelligent than men, right? The dumbest woman is 12 times more intelligent than the smartest guy, right? And when I really internalized that, it was a lot easier to uh, to move within relationships. And guys, were, you know, male vanity is a problem. You know, vanity is not exclusive to women. Men have really bad problems with vanity. Sure. You know, and it's literally like uh, blindness, literally. And, you know, the second thing I realized is that men delude themselves into thinking that they have more sexual power and sexual energy than they actually do. So here's how the dynamic really works, is that women have an infinite supply of sexual energy, and it dwarfs the man to the size of an elephant and an ant. But the male ego thinks it's all that and a bag of chips, mm -hmm. right? And so what women have learned to do, and rightfully so because of their survival for themselves and for their offspring was really predicated on this, is they learn how to take their sexual energy and inject it, target and inject it in a man, making him think that it was him that was feeling it, right? And allowing that male ego to really embrace it to the point to where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Jason Momoa. I'm just, you know, the stud walking stud down the street. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. And once I accepted that, it was a lot easier. So, what a, a, a real man understands from a spiritual point of view is that his sexual power is nowhere near the same as his partner or his wife's, and that men are actually batteries for sexual storage, for sexual energy. And when they are able to bond with a woman, that woman can gracefully infuse that man with sexual energy. And that doesn't mean the man doesn't really enjoy it, but um, she infuses that man with sexual energy. And then what he does is he gains his sexual pleasure from pleasing her instead of pleasing himself, right? Now he's able to last 10 times longer than he did before, right? Mm. Now he's able to uh, let go of all the pretenses and all the pre-ideas that I have to be uh, coy or I have to be aloof, right, to get a woman. So now he's able to bond with her on a level that is par excellence. It's like, it's like uh, love supreme, you know? <laughs> great and song. It's mm -hmm. great, man. It's really a great way to live. And the ability to not waste all that energy and all those male pretenses can be used for a lot of other creative endeavors, you know? And men have a lot of uh, talents that women don't have. But, you know, and, and I talk to guys about this and they're like, that's bullshit. I say, okay, well, let's try a little experiment, right? I want you to go home, no porn, no pictures, no fantasies about any women and sit there and masturbate and tell me how well it went, right? Nothing, every time, nothing. And they're like, holy crap, right? Because without that 
psychic, we'll call it psychic, that a psychic infusion from a woman, whether it be from fantasizing about her or watching an image of her, right? Without that, we don't carry a lot of energy. We don't, right? And it's very liberating when we get to a point where we're actually able to accept that. Hmm. So is that true that, is the opposite true? Like that a woman without visualizing anything, without picturing anything, can masturbate and reach oh, orgasm? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, we're not in the same league, you know. Women have an infinite supply of sexual energy. And they don't need to picture anything. No, no. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you're sharing all this because, um, you know, two, two different thoughts come to mind, two different traditions that are similar, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I think um, just kind of help tie things together. I, I, really, I really appreciate what you're sharing here. Um, one of them is from Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. you know, Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. There's yin and yang right? Men are yang, women are yin. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that we learn, and Carlos, you know this from, from our, our Tai Chi training, our, our Tai Chi teacher would always say, um, you know, you say yin yang, not yang yin. And the reason is because yin is what generates yang. Yang does not generate yin. Right. So the feminine is what generates the masculine, not the masculine generating the feminine. Right. And, um, so what's interesting about that is, is maleness, the masculine is created by the feminine, but the masculine energizes the feminine. So it's, it's an equation that goes one direction, you know, but it doesn't necessarily go the other direction. Oh, sure. Sure. And then, um, also just what what the other thing I was going to say, I I couldn't help, help, but, um, have images of the, the paintings of, um, Shiva and Shakti, you know, Kali, you know, killing Shiva and he often has an erection and he's on the ground and her foot's on top of him and she's holding men's heads and yeah, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Tony also said uh, something else that was, um, it kind of, there's, there's an underlying truism about it. Uh, but it also was, was a, a way it was kind of a joke, I guess you could say with some truth in it. Um, but he used to say, uh, look, but don't touch, touch, but don't feel. And I think one of our other students added, feel, but don't commit. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, but, right. Uh, yeah, all yeah. in fun, but, yeah, but, yeah. but there's, a, there's a certain uh, truism about, about the, the yang between being within the yin and the yin between being within the yang and how you, know, you really can never separate the two. And, and unless you think about its opposite, um, you don't really, you're not looking at it as a whole. Right. Right. You have to see them both. Yeah. yeah. And this is the, one of the biggest challenges with the Me Too movement. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, women's rights are important. You know, women have been subjugated for centuries and that needs to change. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they have this idea that they don't need male energy, you know. Mm-hmm. And a woman cannot store her own energy on her own. She can't. She needs certain things from a man, Right. And if she is loved and cherished and adored and the man understands these energetic dynamics, then she flourishes like unbelievable and she's capable of anything. She really, women are capable of anything. But yeah. it's hard. It's hard for men to get their minds around the idea that they have this role, you know, and that they can move in that realm and really be happy. Because all we want as men is really one thing. And it's not money, property, and prestige. We want the genuine love of one woman. Yeah, which is the, the, the sort of 
corresponding and complementary opposite to what you said, which is that, you know, they say behind every great man is is a woman, right? Mm -hmm. And that, I found that to be true for me. I'm 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 a I'm a lover, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I feel a hundred times more inspired mm -hmm. to be a better me mm -hmm. on every level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I will walk the earth and I will climb a mountain <laughs> like Kilimanjaro um, for love, mm -hmm. because to me it's. Um, it's it's the recognition of something beyond me, mm -hmm. but it's that, you know, there's that phrase, you complete me, which some people think is romantic and some people think is pathetic and stupid. Mm -hmm. um, but I loop back in on itself and believe it's beautiful because right. to me, uh, that is, you cannot in nature have a baby without both. And so in a sense, there's a biological fact there. Mm -hmm. You do complete me archetypally. There's nothing necessarily uh, wrong with that, with that. Right. but there, there are so many people who I think maybe are taking maybe of a pop psychology mindset around it that, that somehow indicates that you're codependent or, but even that word codependent, there is codependence. We are right. dependent upon one another. So, right. so it's, it's all in how you take the word mm. um, and people will jump down your throat yeah. uh, if you say certain things without... Um, considering different ways of looking at I me. Mean, you mentioned the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to even have the conversation that we're having, which is respectful, without someone jumping in and saying, you're being disrespectful. And it's like, no, we're expressing some ideas that, we, that we've that we seen, that right. we believe through our experience. Right. Um, we're going with it. We're being authentic. We're being true to, mm -hmm. to what mm -hmm. we see. And, mm -hmm. and there's some open-mindedness. It's like, this is, this is what I believe right now because this is what I've experienced so far. I'm still open, right? but you can't jump down my throat for that without me just kind of putting the hand up and going, sorry. Well, you know, you, know? And <laughs> you kind of let it spin, you let a top spin, you know, mm -hmm. and you don't brace against the top and you don't fight the top. You just kind of watch it spin <clears throat> and eventually it gets tired and it, kind of falls over, you know, mm -hmm. and cultural movements tend to do that. That's their dynamic, mm -hmm. you know, and all the outrage culture about toxic masculinity is not going to change the evolutionary and spiritual fact that women need men as much as men need women. Yeah. And it's always going to return to that. It's like a resolution in a symphony. It's got to return to that. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 I, I remember as a, as a kid, you know, I, loved my sisters deeply, you know, they, they were wonderful. Uh, and I, and I always wanted to be included, you know, and it was, it was a beautiful thing and loved my mother very much and, and always felt bonded. Um, and I always recognized that what they might experience is going to be different, but there's enough in common that mm -hmm. there was an inclusivity in my thinking. And as I would go through school, uh, you know, you start to see, uh, males and females separating themselves and creating clubs and and even at a very early age, you know, you can't be part of this, you know, because you're a boy or right. you can't be part of this because you're a girl. And I never liked that. I always felt really uncomfortable with that. It's not that I had any discomfort with um, an e organically emergent situation where it happens to be that it's all women or all men, but the idea that, that there's this kind of stark like... Um, you can't because of your gender. That bothers me for some reason. Um, never really sat well with me. Uh, I was the person 
who, when the new girl would come to school, I would go play. We would play games, and everyone else would be chastising me for doing that, or or chastising her because she's the new girl, and it's easy to pick on the new girl. Mm-hmm. And I remember that feeling of feeling happy just to connect and mm-hmm. and to be able to make someone feel welcome. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter whether they're male or female, but just that feeling of of that was a big deal. <laughs> um, when I think over the last year or so, there were some people that invited me to a men's group. I think maybe we spoke about this um, at dinner, possibly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was this, um, I've, I've had quite a few invitations. Um, and inside, I realized that I already have a men's group. They're called my best friends. I feel so close to them and we can share everything. We can agree, disagree. We can help each other. We can um, critique lovingly and um, ask each other's advice. And uh, each of us has a, a strong sense of self in our own way. And we have a facilitative kind of relationship. So it's facilitative leadership. You know, Whoever has the the torch in that moment and we follow the lead of that person and it's just, it just, it works. And I feel completely vulnerable. I feel like I can step into being nurturing. I can be um, sad. I can cry. I can express love. Uh, we can joke. We can do manly man stuff. We can do all of it. We can drum like this, <laughs> sit around a fire and drum or whatever. And I don't feel an attraction to wanting to go to uh, a quote unquote men's group per se, where we're all going to micromanage our language and be woke, quote unquote, males and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not even the right term. Let's just use the English. Awoken, right? It's woke, right? Mm-hmm. So all that stuff is a big turnoff to me. I don't like it. Um, and yet, you know, I'm kind of stepping out on a limb even to say this on a recording because I feel like we're in an age where um, it's almost a draconian control of what you say. You better be careful. You got to censor everything, and there's got to be a bajillion genders in your in your language. Otherwise, you're not being respectful to the different points of view. And it's like, no, come on, you're making it so complicated. I understand there are differences, and I'm respectful of that. But I don't, I don't feel that it's necessary for me to have to be um, constantly going through my glossary of terms to be careful all the time, constantly mm-hmm. that I don't offend somebody. It's like, I hate that. I'm just being yeah. honest. Yeah, <laughs> I fucking I hate know. it. I know. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> we need to relax and love one another and accept yeah. one another and our, and our differences too. But men's groups and women's groups were really important for the survival of our species. You know? When it's organic and emergent, right. I love it. Right. You know, men would go out and hunt together and that was yeah. their ritual. And they bonded with that ritual. Yeah. You know? And women were gatherers, you know, and they would go into the forest and they'd collect the vegetation and things to ornament the the home and hearth and whatnot mm-hmm. and that's still with us today it you is know? i mean if you if you're a man and you go to the mall you know exactly what you want you target that game you go in and you bag that game and you leave yeah, yeah. women go into the mall and they have to go through the entire forest and touch everything right and bond with everything in order for them to be able to make their selections so an understanding and loving man understands the anthropology of that and he lets her do that, mm-hmm. right? And if she's sophisticated enough, then she allows him to go out and do whatever version of hunting he needs to do. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to yeah. put it forth that, you know, men have to be completely subservient to their women. That's not what I'm saying no. at all. It's just a matter of understanding the uh, sexual dynamic and the energy and how it flows, mm-hmm. you know. In, in my mind, primal masculinity is, um, you know, it's an evolution. And um, what mature versions of primal masculinity are, uh are what you're describing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's being understanding and compassionate and having the ability to be nurturing and strong and wiser about how you apply your your power. Mm-hmm. I mean, grace is, to me, the careful application of power. And so it's, it's power being applied with care. Mm-hmm. You know, That's grace to me. And that is not a gender-specific thing. You know, A woman can be graceful, a man can be graceful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so an older, wiser man um, doesn't have to be a diminished male in order to be understanding. Mm-hmm. That's like the difference between kindness and niceness. Mm-hmm. Niceness is reflexive and about people pleasing, whereas kindness is coming from strength and an empowered position. It's a choice mm-hmm. to be kind. It's mm-hmm. like compassion. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about procreation and sexual energy and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So these things come together in something that the Buddha taught, (laughs) which is um, the second most powerful force in a human's life is the power to procreate. So sexual Mm -hmm. power is the second most powerful thirst, I think, to to, to use use maybe a more Buddhist idea. And so trivia what is the first most powerful thirst mm. that a human has? Survival? Yes, to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the thirst to exist. Um, and so it's no wonder that, that we can have a conversation like this. And it's no wonder that um, society and individual experiences have difficulties around this idea of sexuality, right? Because it is the second most powerful force mm-hmm. in our existence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, we, we are playing with something more than fire folks we're, we're dealing with nuclear power here i mean yeah. we really are yeah right? and so it's okay to have these conversations talk about these things and laugh about them and sure. and uh um loosen up a little bit around them you know right. it's okay it's okay we got to do that we got to got to juggle it a little bit so that'd be fun to share well yeah i was speaking of nuclear power i remember reading i don't remember who the author was but they were talking about sexual energy and how um within you know, a single ejaculation and explosion are, are you know, potentially, what was it, is it billions of, of sperm? I can't remember what, how many, you, oh, you yeah, should know yeah. this, right? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to, you know, <laughs> um, I'm supposed to. The medically yeah. trained I Don't person. tell my, my anatomy count. students. Yeah, I, lost, but, yeah. I try to yeah, count no, them no, every time. But, there's, there's yeah. like, there's like millions and millions and millions in just like a CC, you know, so I mean, okay, it's, so, there's, there's lots know, If you think about that, what yeah. a nuclear bomb does, um, it destroys, you know, a large area, but I mean, in a singular ejaculation, you could... If, if every sperm had an egg, you know, reminds me of the song, every sperm is sacred. Um, Monty Python fan over here. But anyway, um, that you're, you could potentially create, you know, all of these beings, you know, so it's kind of a metaphor in a way, but there's some truth to it. Um, mm-hmm. How powerful that is, like a nuclear explosion between your thighs. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> it's great. been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest once again, 
David Mayan. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. Please remember to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. And you can find our website at AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening. Have an authentic day.